Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to be Human. This will be another episode of Classic Spotlight, episode 92, Clive Barker. Now, this is definitely different than all the other authors, and I don't mean just to say modern master because it sounds cool or because it's true. Both happen to be the case. But also because he's probably the only uh, writer of Spotlight so far that's actually still alive. Um, so it, it, it's amazing because you think about it and you think, wow, all these people are all dead. Even the ones in my lifetime are dead, so I'm happy you're still alive. Now, Clive Barker is a British writer, and, and a writer that spun on into into the horror uh, genre in the early 80s with his books of blood. Now, these are an extremely uh, unique set of circumstances with him, because I remember being in Germany in the Air Force, and then I remember going to Saudi Arabia on a on a, a temporary duty assignment, and I, we actually picked up a few of his books, and eventually I collected all of them. I think there was five of them all together. And they were unique for a couple of reasons. First of all, there wasn't too many, um, even on the big commercial level, there wasn't too many books that collected short stories, even in horror anymore. That started, started phasing out. So he brought it back with a real vengeance, and his... Writing is much more literary than it would be commercial. So I really, I really praise him when I noticed that right away. I mean, you'd read books, it'd say on the, on the, on the top of the book, uh, Stephen King, uh, he's better than I am now. So I mean, that's that's how much of an impact he had, even Stephen King had, saying how great he was. But um, I like those books of blood primarily because they they had a real a real timeliness to them. Not that they don't have it now, but they really did back then. They had such an impact because every single story in that collection had some element of blood that was going on. Something about blood. And if you recall, in the 80s, uh, blood was uh, was the new boogeyman. It was the scare thing. It was the evil because of AIDS and, and all the deal with that back in the day before we had a real knowledge of what that was about and you know, having some manageable treatments like they have now, maybe one day a cure. But it was ravaging society and causing all kinds of fear and prejudice and, and, and all kinds of hate crimes. It's just a horrible situation, even in Europe when I was over there. So I wasn't shielded from all of that being in Europe. Uh, but a lot of that stuff was happening in America, unfortunately. And he wrote about that. And you can tell in a few of his stories, he was definitely making commentary on that and, and definitely uh, letting folks know, you know, how much uh, blood had meaning to our lives and, and, and how it had, you know, eons of, of, of tales to, to be told and, and just to have a disease that just came in our lifetime and that we're all going to lose our minds is ridiculous. I mean, we only discovered even how to, how to really um, take blood from individuals and even store it, and it wasn't even just around World War II. So, I mean, our knowledge of it is still, it was still primitive, I mean, if you think about it. When Books of Blood came out, it was only like 40-something years before that that we figured out how to really do things with blood that we couldn't do before, how absolutely vital and precious this is. 
So it was incredible to have these stories. And I tell you, I loved them all. And, and, but I, I was I was definitely shocked by a few of them because uh, Stephen, uh, excuse me, um, Clive Barker, unlike Stephen King, is a gay man and, and married to another man. So before that even became a, a hip and rogue thing, he was already doing that. And he actually introduced, uh, you know, uh, gay themes and even, even a couple of episodes of gay sex in, in, in the writing. So and, and of course, he managed to do this without being labeled a gay writer. He was still just a horror writer and he managed to not have to, to deal with any labels that way. You know, and I'm certainly glad for him that way because all that would have did was uh, hurt what he was trying to do. But it was definitely a shocker to read and something new that we really haven't really seen before in, in, in literature in general and certainly in, in science fiction, or in this case, uh, uh, horror, more horror than, than science fiction. Although there was a few stories that bordered on, on science fiction, and, and you can really say that about some of his writing. But those books were really incredible. Uh, one of them, which really was a novella called The Hellbound Heart, wound up becoming a, a, a movie series called Hellraiser. So um, this is when Clive Barker started becoming more of a household name and more of a of a Hollywood, uh, you know, um, quantity, if not a, a, a Hollywood uh, item that uh, people were like, hey, maybe we can go to him to do some stuff. But unlike King, whose books are a little bit more adaptable, even though the films don't always come out well, uh, it's not the same thing for Clive Barker. So he was... Uh, if you could say ambitious enough to write some of his own screenplays and even direct some of his own movies. And he did that with Hell, Hellraiser, the first one, and uh, introduced a number of interesting characters in there. Uh, so uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, for the first time here, a writer that has gone beyond just simply writing uh, books. He was also uh, writing novels. He was also writing screenplays and plays. And he's a very accomplished illustrator. And I've seen some of his uh, artwork on some of his other books so he was able to get that in there uh, even though he's known primarily as a writer uh, remember this man is also a director and also an illustrator so he has a lot of facets to him and we'll talk about some of that as much as we can in this just keep in mind that's why we call this thoughts you know about Clive Barker just like all the other uh, shows we did on the author is because I'm picking and choosing things I find interesting it doesn't mean this is all his work or these are all the things that are interesting. You still have your own time to go find those those things out. But we'll talk about what I what I find interesting and, and hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll share some of the same things. Now, Hellraiser and the entire movie series, there was nine sequels to it, was really very interesting in the sense that you have horror characters that have intelligence. They seem to have their own code. I don't know if you want to call it an honor code, but they definitely have a code. And they have a set of rules whether they want to admit it or not. And these are the creatures called the Cenobites. They're brought to your attention because you're trying to solve some kind of uh, evil Rubik's Cube. And usually because you're, um, you're, uh, you're utterly curious and most likely it seems to unlock it for the people that are, that are deviant. There's something deviant about people that do this. Uh, most of the times on a sexual manner from what he was describing. And... I think um, the moral of, of Hellraiser, more than just, uh, you know, going to places that you shouldn't go or, or, or messing with hell when you shouldn't be messing with hell because it, it has, uh, you know, it has powers and it has uh, places that are beyond your imagination. But also uh, it, it was it was telling us that, hey, you think you're a deviant. Well, guess what? There's some down there that are, that are far worse and they wouldn't mind messing with you. 
So, uh, you know, what goes around is definitely going to come around. And that's what Hellraiser has a lot to be about. You solve the box. You open up a, a, a portal to hell and the sound bites come out. Uh, the primary one being Pinhead. He's the one that talked. And he had a, a wry a sense of humor, but he also had a certain philosophy. And like I said, a type of a code to him. He wasn't just a mindless monster. He was doing things and he was also giving us a sort of a weird instruction about the dark side of, uh, of our, uh, I guess you could say our world. Or maybe even, uh, you know, the spiritual dark side of things. So it's some interesting quotes over here uh, that he, he said, Pinhead, that, that character. Uh, the box, you opened it. We came. Now you must come with us and taste our pleasures. So um, he was just reminding people, hey, you did this. We didn't come over and bother you. You bothered us. Now we're going to be messing with you. Uh, he liked to talk about suffering a lot because uh, Pinhead and, and, the, and his denizens from hell, suffering for them was pleasure. It was the opposite. They enjoyed it. It was like a sexual, kinky, lovely thing that they, they enjoyed doing. So your pain was their pleasure. No tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. It's one of the more famous quotes from Pinhead. It's got a lot of interesting quotes in that film that, that Father Barker had wrote. It's things that, that really teach you something about the kind of world that he's, he's laying before us. We have such sights to show you. These guys are almost excited and showing you all this evil, dark stuff. These... These weird old Cenobites. Um, he, oftentimes he'll, he'll say, we'll tear your soul apart. And he'll say it in, in such a, you know, ghastly British kind of uh, tone. It, it makes it even more scary, I think, when it's in a, that British accent. I know I have British listeners and I'm not trying to offend you. But I'm saying from an American standpoint, it sounds scarier, okay? Um, maybe on your end, if you hear somebody with an American accent say something, maybe that's scary to you. But... For me and for many people, yep, it makes it more scary, more classy, more dark. That's the British accent. What can I tell you? Now, I find more than the Hellraiser series, which was actually a commercial hit for him, um, is the movie that he not only wrote but directed uh, again, but this time it's a standalone movie called Nightbreed. It's partially based off his novel called Cabal, but basically it's it's a, a work about prejudice imagine uh, being in the world where the truth is reversed and what you what you've always thought instead of the monsters being the bad guys what about the regular people being the bad guys the hateful people the prejudiced people people that reaches for the knives and the guns and want to destroy things they don't understand versus the monsters that are actually decent just trying to live their lives and going about things and if they're doing anything for harm, it's to protect themselves, not because they're out there hurting people. They like to live in their world, but there are people over there trying to find them and hunt them down and kill them. And that's really what the, the, the essence of Nightbreed, a whole lot about prejudice. And you, you see some of the some of the crappier sides of humanity in, in that movie. It didn't do well initially at the box office, but it's now a cult hit. It, it is a huge hit. Uh, I remember somebody saying that they thought it was the greatest British movie ever made out of England, you know, for horror. And it, that might be true, you know, but um, it, it's definitely a, a, one of the big ones on my on, on my uh, page of things, not just in horror movies, but just of, of Clyde Barker works. I, I really, I really appreciate it and I'm and, and glad he went in, in that direction with it. It's not a movie that normally would have been done out of Hollywood. I'm glad he took the reins and did it. I mean, he still had problems because it was marketed in a horrible fashion. It was almost like people don't read books or read the script or, or just try to understand something a little bit deeper. You know, so they, they marketed it just like some kind of stupid slasher film or something. 
again makes no sense but i'm glad that people really saw the value and the intelligence of it and quite frankly there's a certain morality to it uh, too about uh, teaching us about about prejudice and i, I really really love that movie some of the better movies that, that are in horror or in science fiction can really can really do that now clive barker is an incredibly fascinating individual in the sense that even though we know a lot of his works and we know that you know he's he's a gay man he's married we don't know too much more beyond beyond that. He's written a number of uh, of other novels. Uh, one called Damnation Alley that that did very well. Uh, another called uh, Imanji that was really uh, that was really awesome to see. Uh, they did a few other movies of some of his shorter works and they didn't really do so well. Like a movie came out called Lord of Illusions and it's just about um, a cult and and tapping into the spiritual uh, you know dark side of things. It just wasn't put together very well. You know, he had an excellent uh, story, and, and they made a, me, uh, a movie out of it called uh, Rawhead Rex, you know. And it, it's just this crazy-looking creature running around killing people, and I think in the, in the, the Scottish countryside or something. It, it, it was fun and interesting, but it didn't really work out too well. Uh, I know there was a, um, a Midnight Meat Train, which is one of his really dark stories. I mean, talking about blood. I mean, that story was blood from... I mean, I, I think after the you read the story, you, you might feel like you got some blood on your hands. That's how bloody that story is. Right out of the Books of Blood series, by the way. They did a, a, you know, an independent movie on that. I didn't really like the way it came out either. I mean, I really wish somebody would came out with something a little bit more more professional. And maybe that will happen one day. But um, that that's also one of his really great stories. There's a number of incredible stories in the Books of Blood. Um, they got one story about... Um, hands the person's hands rebelling against the body and, and trying to detach themselves because they want to live their own life in, in, in an independent way as you can imagine when your hand wants to rip off yourself there's a lot of blood involved so you, you got that i know there was a, a an incredible story about uh an experiment in a, in a laboratory where they were trying to figure out ways to increase strength in people and so they, they injected this into a gorilla it wind up breaking out of the cage, killing everybody in the laboratory, and then actually raping people. Um, uh, as you can probably imagine, there was a lot of blood coming on that story. Just maybe not in areas you might li like to read, but hey, blood is blood. So that, that was actually one of the more interesting stories, believe it or not. You've had so many of those in, in, that, uh, in that series. Uh, some of them that really, they really jump to your to your attention and some of them are deeper than others some of them just really are about just the horror of 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 unexpected death and others have a, a detective kind of angle to them and everything because they were trying to hunt down that that, that 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 gorilla for a while so that was uh that was really something else i, I don't know if it was a a little bit of a homage on uh, you know to Edgar Allan Poe's uh, you know murders and rue morgue but hey it, it kind of gave me that that feeling only it was a lot more it's a lot more bloody <laughs> That's for sure. I'm definitely looking forward to more of, of Clyde Barker in the years to come, especially if he can get more involved in film or even if he can do something like on an HBO series because that kind of quality would really lend to his work. And then people really get to see some of the, the enormous things that, that he can do and, and what he has to say. I, I really find that, that man very fascinating, very literary because he lets you think about things. It's not just... A, kill this and have sex that and all that kind of stuff to me he always had a really good balance 
you know, and, and, and that's really what I think you need more than now. Cause right now, sometimes they get too carried away with, you know, with violence or they get too carried away with sex. And then, you know, you forget about the whole storyline cause you know, naked people are running around and people's heads are flying off. I mean, come on, you know, car has to be a little bit more than, than that. And, and that's why I'm glad that this is a man that's still around and still doing the, some 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 great things and I'm, I'm really expecting that something else is going to come out of him i was reading that there's another project that he was working on thank god so i'll be happy to, to see that come about i really think he needs to get with like a netflix or one of the streaming services they have some money and they want to do something interesting because there's something you can get that's original you know and, and that's that's very creative and, and I, I really think that we'll learn more you know i think about the world about ourselves maybe even about some of the dimensions of you know, of spirituality from from the, from the kind of writing he does. It, it to me, it's the kind of writing that should have been coming out of, you know, Neil Gaiman. I know he has a big following and people love him, but to me, it, it, it to me, he's very schlocky or, or just purposely being provocative, like he he's got to try to upset somebody. Always, he can't make a point. And to me, the best writing, I feel, are people like Clive Barker, the people that that are, that are saying very important things, and, and they can be provocative. But you're not you're not leaving the story feeling offended. You're not really feeling that, you know, he's tried to take advantage to get a point across. You're leaving the story saying this guy's interesting. This guy's literary. This is some incredible uh, writing. Uh, yeah, it can be messy at times. But hey, uh, that's that's a good way, uh, I feel, to, to be able to keep things in context. And imagine keeping things in context and you're writing things in, in, in such a, a, a bloody and oftentimes a violent fashion, but you feel, you know, that it has a purpose. It's just, it's not aimless and it's certainly not rootless. It's definitely not senseless. You know, it's not some Friday the 13th where, you know, some weirdo in a hockey match just stabs everybody in, 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 their, in their uncle. You know, it, it, to me, it, it always had an intelligence about it. And that's what I kind of like about it. Even on the, you know, the bad people in the stories, they, they have a brain. Uh, they apparently have a purpose and a plan, you know, and they're carrying that out. The funny thing is they don't, and that's what I like about him too, is they don't think, they don't think, the, the bad guys, that they're doing, they're doing something that is actually good and they just point at your hypocrisy. I like the fact that he doesn't go that, that boring road that we've seen so many times already. His bad people know they're bad. They just feel, now that you stepped over the line in my territory, I get to be who I want. I'm telling you who I am, and here's what I'm going to be doing to you. I mean, at least they're straight straight up about who they are. And I always feel that that's a better way of going about things than, than some of the corny things we've seen before where, oh, the serial killer really thinks they're doing something good because they were abused and blah, blah, blah. To me, it just seems like we make excuses for villains instead of just letting, being villains you know, who they are. Now, I agree. You're going to have some villains out there in society, especially in the real world. We might never know what's compelling them to do these things. Okay. And that's fine. So you can't, you're not always going to know. But uh, when you're writing down something, I mean, you, you can't go that route. Or, or in my, um, like I said, I've seen it too many times. It's become such a cliche where they're almost trying to justify their stupidity and their evil. Don't do that. Okay. It, it's almost to me like you give an evil a bad name when you're trying to justify it and making it something good. Believe me, folks, it's very clear, good and evil. There's not a whole lot of stuff in the middle, okay? And quite frankly, the people in, in, that are doing things in the middle, in the gray area, not to me, in my, in my viewpoint, uh, they're, they're, they're simply evil light. They're almost there to where you guys are at over on the evil side. So 
Don't be too impressed. And they might have to call for their own actions and their own consequences. Just like a dirty Harry. Or just like some of the other characters we've seen in movies before. I mean, we might cheer them on. But, you know, in the end, how good are these people? Because the problem with the, with movies that, that base things on vigilantes. And I don't care if it's uh, Clint Eastwood or if it's a, a, a Batman. Is that... They never answer the question about, well, when does the person draw the line? Uh, when does the person knows how to stop being a vigilante? When do they stop being drunk from the power they get from this? When do they start killing me and you? After they finish with the Joker and, you know, everybody else. When does that stop? Hmm? You really think he just sits down and has a, a red wine and watches some TV and some sports? Uh, no. These are driven creatures. So... That's why the gray area, don't be too impressed by it and try to play with it a lot because there really isn't whole much of a gray area, you know? Nobody wants to say anything, and that's why I like Clive Barker. He says what should be said, you know? And I'm paraphrasing the situation. He's not saying this, but I'm telling you, in between the lines he's saying this, he's not impressed with the things in the middle. He's really not, you know? If Clive Barker could talk to Batman, he'd probably say, <laughs> you know, why are you any different than the bad guys? Why, because you say you're good? Hmm? You're wearing a, a weird uh, mask, uh, keeping your identity secret, living in some cave with a boy. Don't get me started on that. Jeez. Okay. And uh, and you're beating and killing people. Uh, you might want to call them villains all you want, but again, you know, who said you're supposed to be doing this? I, I certainly didn't give you any permission. Where the hell are the cops in these damn shows, these movies? Makes no damn sense. It really doesn't, you know? So, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. And that's why I wonder about this things. Things are a lot more black and white than they are gray. I think we just sort of like sheltered ourselves from the wild world because we, we don't want to deal with the, with the basic extremes of life. You know, because it calls upon us to make a decision then or to have a judgment. I know, God forbid, we're in a society where nobody wants any judgment anymore. Well, guess what? That's why I like about Clive Barker so much because he, he does exercise judgment. Some things are just plainly wrong. You know, you, you lock up some animals that didn't want to be captured, certainly want to be experimented on. Well, don't get all upset when they're breaking out and killing you. OK, and then uh, killing people in society. Is this the animal's fault or, or is it because we, we, what are we doing? Do we have a right to do this? We really don't. Now, I'm not the biggest animal rights person in the world, and I understand that. Sometimes you're going to take some animals now and then, a few out of the pack, and try to do things to try to help us all. Sometimes even those things help animals, too. I understand all that, but there ought to be some oversight to that. There ought to be some limitations to that. We should always be wondering about what we're doing. You know, it's harmful to ourselves as well as to animals, and maybe hopefully one day we figure out ways where we can do experiments, we could do things that don't, that don't cause harm to living creatures. That's all I'm saying. You know, I'm not going to be out there protesting this, okay? I, I'm not I'm not comfortable with it, and I, I wish one day it, it can stop. But I understand also that, you know, um, human beings are, are, are important. And quite frankly, if you're an atheist and you live, believe in evolution, then you should have no problem believing me uh, that I say that at the top of the food chain, okay? I, I'm always I'm always really perplexed by people that they uh, they want to say they don't believe in God and, and animals and blah, blah, blah. But then uh, we're supposed to protect animals and it's supposed to be equal to us. You can't have it all ways from Sunday, okay? 
That's why sometimes uh, things have to be just written plainly on the good and the evil side of things. Not mixing in, uh, I feel, confusing or idiotic politics. So, yeah, wrong to harm animals. We're going to still do it for our own purposes. I just hope they try to contain that and, and try to keep that you know, as, as limited as possible until we learn more about computer models and other things that we can do that doesn't cause uh, any harm, you know? But I, I have a child that, that benefited from some of this sort of research, so I can't be the one that says it has to be 100% eliminated. It, it, you know, that flies into who I am and, and what I've benefited from that and, and the blessing that they, they came, you know, from that type of work. You know, I just got to hope and, and push as much as I can to make sure that people are ethically responsible, do what they have to do and get out of there and, and not, you know, not meander around in that. So... And that's really what makes, I, I feel, Clive Barker quite unique because he, he had a real, a real, I feel, practical and modern sensibility to it all. He brought that certain morality about prejudice and a lot, a lot higher of an impact, I feel, than, than before. And um, also, I, I feel he's much more of a straight shooter. He wasn't trying to infest everything with all kinds of different political ideals. In fact, uh, I found it very refreshing that his book seemed to be quite politically free in, in many instances. And, and that's and that's a good thing because it, it lets the writing come out. It lets it lets his own thoughts and feelings come out, and and, and of course his literary sense of of, of outrage is, is really impeccable. You know the man uh, can can write in my in my in my feeling probably one of the best horror writers we've had in 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 a hundred years. That's how that's how incredible this man is and how much his work is gonna is gonna last. I'm hoping eventually he'll be able to transform maybe Hollywood into something that has some more quality than than some of the some of the garbage we've seen over the last just ten years. Everything's a sequel. Everybody has a helmet on. Everybody's shooting some power at their butt or something. I don't know. It's just kind of getting old after a while. Can we get back to some storytelling that does involve cartoons, people from comics, or you know, or this slashers running around stabbing everybody? I mean. There's got to be more stories out there than that, and they are. They're contained in this man's, in this man's works, and, and and incredible works that they are. Now he, he is an illustrator, and it, it, I always find it, and and I don't mean to ridicule anybody, but I always find it unusual when uh, writers wind up having other other talents as well. Uh, you know, talents like in music. You know, we got Woody Allen, who who is uh, not only a director but also a playwright, so he is a writer, and uh, he can play. Uh, he can play the, um, I think it's the jazz uh, trombone. Uh, was it the jazz? No, I think it's the jazz trumpet. I'm sorry. I think it's the jazz trumpet. Yeah, and he goes around doing some tours and stuff every so often. And uh, I'm told that he's pretty good at it. I don't know how he ranks up against, you know, some of the greats. I don't even know if he's supposed to rank up. Maybe just he does enjoys it and that's that. But, you know, um, I understand that he, he does it that where people want to hear it and even pay for it. So, hey. Um, uh, I've seen some of the illustrations uh, from uh, Clyde Barker. So I know that the man can draw. He, he can definitely illustrate. He definitely has a real talent for that. You know, um, I'm not the, the, the greatest uh, artist critic in the world. And uh, so it's uh, his work uh, where I find it, it, it's interesting and, and really refreshing in many ways. But it's it's just not my kind of art. I, I like different types of art. So it's not for me. Um and he, I know he's done, a, I think I have one of his, um, uh, I think it was a Diary of the Devil. Uh, it was an audio, an audio um, cassette uh, series of his stuff. 
and he actually did the uh, the illustrations for that. It was on the on the cardboard cover of that. So I, I know it's come out in a number of his other books as well. So it's good to have his own work out there. I guess if you can do that, why not? You know, not my cup of tea, but he's out there and he's definitely a quality person doing that. Where he goes from there, I don't know, because to me, he's still a writer. He's also a playwright. He's done some some plays as well. That was one of the plays he did, A Diary of the Devil, that was also done on the audio cassette that uh, somebody had uh, had uh, narrated. So I really like that one a lot. So we got Clive Barker here. Okay, if you join us later in the show, or if you just want to know where else we're going to go with this show on this Modern Master. All right, and no no doubt about this. Okay, mainly because. We haven't had too many writers that became really literary as they were doing horror. I mean, in many ways, people started taking after Stephen King and making it a much more commercial entity. Both his uh, his books, his short stories even, and of course the movies, very commercial, very common denominator, very very schlocky. And, and I'm not even saying schlocky in a disrespectful way. I'm just, that's just honestly what it is, schlocky. We, we all know what that is. You know, he called himself the McDonald's of horror writers and... He, that would be accurate to say that. He's done well. He's helped many other writers out. And so we can all we can do is, is salute him and, and be grateful of that. But I am happy that we were able to move past that with Clive Barker. And hopefully other writers that are going to be coming down the pike over here. That will show us uh, a, new, a new dimension. And other places that we can explore that we really haven't gone before. You know, because um, in many ways... Uh, Stephen King really hasn't done a lot of exploration on the spiritual uh, side of things, really, as much. I mean, I guess you could say the vampire thing with the Salem's Lot had a spiritual element to it, but I don't know, really? It's it's horror. I mean, it's a, it's another, you know, vampire series, you know, another takeoff of a takeoff of a takeoff of a takeoff of a takeoff of Dracula, you know? So, <laughs> you know. We call it what it is. It's a variation on the theme that you know we've seen uh, twenty nine thousand times already. You know, so we really haven't seen the kind of spirituality that comes out of uh, some of the stuff that that Clive Barker wants to really bring to our attention. I like how he hasn't really shied away from the British aspects of thing of the culture. It's in there, and you won't get lost by it, which is great. But you know, he doesn't shy away from it too. And in some instances, you know, he's he's in Ireland or he's in Scotland as well. So he's done some some exploring around and, and, and some real exploration. And I really like that. Uh, I'm just so, I'm so thrilled to be able to, to talk about some of his work and, and some of the things he was trying to do. And of course, be happy that he's alive. Unlike Harlan, who's not alive anymore, uh, and who I met twice, I, I was I'd never able to meet uh, Clive Barker. I think he does a few shows here and there and some you know signings, but he's not really the biggest person out there on, on that public you know, arena, and I don't really think that it, it's really his, probably his forte, and I certainly I don't think he definitely needs it, you know. I did read a, a book, and I urge you guys to get it. I, I, I doubt if it's even in print anymore, so you probably have to find it on, you know, Amazon or, or eBay or something, but there was a, a book put out where it had two very long interviews, and it's in the paperback, of Stephen King and then one of Clyde Barker together, side by side. So you get to hear and read many of the things that they had to say, you know, about the nature of, of writing and about art, about horror, about humanity, you know. I would say from reading that and hearing from their own words, it was really clear to me that even though these are writers 
that you would think of writing about different subjects and, of course, different styles. Um, they both seem to come across as writers that had real, real skeptical issues with, with the human condition. And they understood then how so much of it uh, is, is flawed and often corrupted and how when it mixes with power or possibly even convenience, and of course if you throw the spiritual element in there, you know, you get some of the bad things that continue to be inhabiting in, in our soul, in, in, in our psyche, really. Now, um, as you probably already realize, there are religions that feel that, yeah, we agree with that, Mark, and so we have a plan to redeem you from that. Uh, Christianity is a perfect example of that, but there are others that do that too. Islam has some redemption qualities as well. But basically, um, you have a number of faiths out there that uh, agree with the um, what they call um, the imperfect nature of humanity, and therefore it, it has a plan to help you become, if not perfect, uh, more perfect. And uh, it's not hard to be skeptical about that too, because... Um, We've seen lots of problems with that as well. I mean, in the end, and both of these writers have talked about that, and they've made it in the subject of their writing in many instances where, and this is, again, I'm not trying to mock anybody's religion or even anybody's faith in science, but it's not hard to point out to a person that you've now turned from heroines and you got them onto uh, believing into uh, the faith of Jesus Christ, let's say, that... In one aspect, he exchanged one addiction for another. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been around ex-smokers before. I'm one of those, and I'm not really into that whole preaching thing, so I wouldn't be one of those. But I've met plenty that, you know, they, they just think that, that you know, they're telling you all about it and nagging you to death about it is, is supposed to somehow help you. I remember when told me, people told me to stop smoking when I was smoking, I told them to drop dead, and I use other words as well. I don't want to hear that crap. I mean... I'm a free person. Leave me the hell alone. I'll stop when I want to stop, which is exactly what he did. You know, in April of uh, 2020, okay, it'll be 16 years that, I, that I've quit smoking. But you have to do things on your own. And I think oftentimes, uh, and both of them have mentioned that, there's a real fertile ground there to write and to exploit and to understand that if you exchange one addiction for another, meaning the addiction of drugs versus the addiction of religion, well, I don't know what you're doing. You, you might actually improve your health because you're not, you know, using drugs anymore. But I don't know, are you improving your life in a sense that you're a happier person? I mean, do people still want to be around you? Because I don't know about you folks, but I don't want to be around the heroin addict, okay? And I don't want to be around the religious nutball either. I don't. I don't need either one of these people in my lives. In my, in my view, they both addicted to something and they're both unreliable because the problem with addiction is it makes you unreliable no matter what it is and why does it make you unreliable because you're almost a slave to it how the hell are you going to be my friend if you want to like listen man I, I don't know mark if i can talk to you about this yet let me ask jesus and then i'll get back to you in three days okay uh, how do i have a friend that's going to say something like that more importantly mean something like that Kind of hard to have a friend that way because it doesn't exactly sound very reliable. You know? Hey, Mark, man, I like to visit your kids, but I really can't do it until after I finish shooting this smack. You know, then I'll be high enough to where I'll, I'll kind of like calm down because, you know, life's rough. Yeah, hmm? yeah, you're right. Life is rough. It's rougher when you're on smack, okay? It's not any easier. 
So I think they understood that, and, and then I know uh, they explored that on many instances, and it's something we need to understand and we need to realize too, okay? We're not helping people in the end if we're helping them trade one addiction for another, one problem for another, okay? We need to try to help people if we can help people, if it's possible, because sometimes it's not even possible to help somebody. They got to just do it themselves. But when you can help somebody, you want to help somebody out of that thing. Okay? You don't want to help somebody out of spandex just to put them into a tight dress. You're not doing anybody any good. Okay? They still got a big butt. People are still laughing. Still not healthy for them to have this constricting their veins. All right? It's no different than anything else. You're helping somebody away from something that's garbage and moving on. To have a better uh, a regular life, not not going back to something exotic again, you know? Like, um, I used to smoke cigarettes, now I vape. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure semantically on paper that sounds really cool, but you're still, you're still inheriting all kinds of ridiculous chemicals, uh, not to mention some of these devices actually explode in your face. I'm telling you something, folks. I smoked for 22 years all over the world. In fact, I've been to 32 countries. I guarantee you I smoked plenty of times in all 32 of those countries. Never once did their cigarettes or my cigarettes explode in my face, okay? Never once. So, don't tell me about how this is safer and, 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 and cooler and less dangerous. Yeah, sure. So, none of this makes any sense. So, really, you know? Just like the people that, uh, I, I, I drink near beer now. I don't drink beer anymore. What the hell is the point of drinking near beer? All right? What do you need to be near? Okay? Why don't you just put down the beer and just like drink some Coke? Okay? Uh, how about you get near some water maybe? All right? What the hell is this near beer? So these, these half measures, or in many instances, no measures, are idiotic. And, and they're fertile ground to write about, folks. I mean, these writers have written about it. You'll have plenty of other people. I know myself on the social uh, angle of writing will write about these things because uh, I find inherently there's something dishonest about that. Okay, there's something dishonest about me, let's say, being stuck to a church that practically controls my life and I'm going to drag in my friend who's, you know, who's, who's hooked to cocaine. Hey, look, I got him off of coke. But I got him on this right now and he's probably more broke with me on that than he was with cocaine. And, and sounds crazier too. So none of this makes a lot of sense. It's, it's fertile ground because we have to be able to look at our own, not just hypocrisies, because believe it or not, there's a lot of things that people do that, nece that necessarily is hypocritical. I mean, it's even kind of lame to call it inconsistent. It's just that, that stupid sense of, of good intentions. You know, I think this is better for them than that. Really, uh, that's what you think? How wonderful. How about you just help them get off of that crap and then make them, they can make their own damn decisions up, all right? Because that's one of their problems in the first place. They didn't want to make decisions, so they want them to get hooked on something. That's ultimately why people get addicted, folks, and it's good ground for us to write about, whether we're horror writers, science fiction writers, even romance writers. There's a lot of good ground for that, folks, because it's really the basis on why people get addicted. Why do they get addicted? Oh, Mark, they're depressed. Oh, Mark, they're sad about something. Oh, Mark, somebody abused them. No. In the end, regardless of all that stuff that might have happened to a person, in the end, people get addicted to something, no matter what it is. I don't care if it's drugs, alcohol, religion, whatever. Cutting yourself, uh, having some you know, sex with uh, animals or whatever. I don't know. 
they they do these ejections because they don't want to make decisions. So it's easier to simply not have to make decisions and face life. And that's why people do these things. Okay? Because there's no reason that you're coming out of an abusive relationship. And now, yeah, I, I got away from this guy from beating me finally. So I can't wait to shoot some heroin in my arm. I mean, how the hell is that any improvement? So you don't want to make a decision about dealing with the trauma from that. And then people go on to dumb things. And that hurts them even more. It hurts society too. Hurts those friends. Hurts their families. Don't forget folks. When these people are doing this. These are not victimless crimes. None of them are. There's plenty of victims all around them. Friends, relatives, all kinds of people. Careers, talents, everything. Out the window. For nonsense. And that's what I like about Clive Harker. And, and, and even Stephen King to a certain extent. Is they try to bring out some of the more modern aspects of life. Kind of give it a twist to let you see. You know what's going on. Uh, one of the things I really liked about Pet Cemetery from Stephen King is, and I really think it was one of his masterworks, in my opinion. A lot of people have all kinds of other opinions on it. That's fine. I think The Dead Zone is great. I like it a lot, but I think Pet Cemetery to me, hit home. Because it is so natural to want to have your child come back to life when your child is killed, and for no good reason. It, it, it's, it's, you can't get any more of a parental of a power of a persistence, of, of, of just wanting to do anything to see that happen again, you know. And never considering that what could come back is not going to be your daughter anymore because your daughter's soul has moved on. That's not the same thing anymore. It might look at her, but it's not the same thing. But you don't care. You just want that so badly. Again, it's an addiction for that, that kind of a want, really. And, and, and quite frankly, it's because you're not facing the decision that your daughter's gone. I mean, that's really how these things are. It's not that more complicated than that. I think we make it way too complicated on these on these uh, talk shows and, and in books sometimes or conversation with people or even on radio shows. We make it complicated because we don't want to actually just talk direct about it. We just we want to dance around it and then we just make it more more ridiculous than it has to be. You know, I don't think pandering people or patronize them is really the best thing to do. Somebody loses the child, then you got to help them face that so they can move on. Not to say that they move on and forget their child forever, but they need to move on with their life. Otherwise, it stays. It stays still, and that's what that's where the damage comes in. You know, it's bad enough to have the pain. You don't want to have that continuing on. It's like anything else. Horror, I think, more than science fiction, often can addresses some of the pains that we have. You know, remember all those characters in in those on those. Short stories from the books of blood from Clive Barker. Every one of those people in there were doing something that resulted in blood, but came from various pains they've had that they were trying to deal with. Some of them were criminals and dealing with all kinds of, you know, wrestling with all kinds of demons. Others were well-wishing people. You know, those scientists in the lab, was they really wasn't some evil jerks. They thought they were doing right. They were just doing wrong, unfortunately. Uh, there was a lot of uh, really interesting and positive characters in there that are being chased around by, by bad, uh, by bad elements and and elements that they didn't really um, bring about in the first place. But they're they're connected to it, so now they got to do something about it. But I really like that he has a, a real a real sense I I feel of morality which you don't really really see, and uh, we need to see more of that, uh, especially in in the scarier uh, writing. And I like to see it more in romance, too, because uh, he had a couple of stories in there that I, I felt had a nice 
almost romantic twist to them, and they really did. And that was that was a nice thing to see. It's really a really a broad series. All five of those books, you can get them. They they still should be in bookstores. Some of them might not be. You can always order them on Amazon or eBay. You can get um, some of the original covers from eBay on the original books of Blood are actually pretty interesting. They have new covers now that I don't know. They're kind of like. To me, they're kind of cheesy. Some of the original ones I thought were a lot more interesting. You can get those, the ones that are you know released in the in the nineteen in the nineteen eighties. But look out for this guy. Look out for his writing. Look out for some of the interesting things he's done in film. If you want to catch up something that's on one of the streaming services, or you know maybe a, a DVD at a store one day or something, you know the first uh, I feel the first uh, two Hellraisers were really good. And then there was another Hellraiser, which I, I believe was like the number four in the series. It was called Bloodline. And that went, went back to like the 1700s in France uh, uh, when people messing with that box and, and bringing about those Cenobites from hell. And then it went into the future where they had like a, a space station in the future. So it really crossed over like a number of centuries. It was really, really put together very well. Uh, that third Hellraiser, uh, not very good. But uh, the first two and number four, the, the, those are really the, the really the best to, to learn a lot about about those characters and some of the things he was uh, he was trying to do. Of course, um, Nightbreed, a, a classic in classics. Um, and here's a very interesting trivial fact on that one as well. Here's a horror movie that starred David Cronenberg, who is a Canadian horror writer and horror director. He didn't direct this movie. Night, uh, Clyde Barker did, but he actually started in that as an actor. David Cronenberg did a lot of interesting films, some really fantastic forward-thinking uh, horror films like Videodrome, talking about some of the things you could do with videos and, and how that can cross over into another dimension and, and hurt people. Uh, Deborah Harry was in that, by the way, and that was the back in the days when she was young and, and, and still hot in, in the band and doing great work. She did a really good acting job in that. Um, another one called Scanners, where uh, you know people uh, you know can, can scan and, and learn things, but then they can harm other people. Um, and then, of course, uh, he did a remake of The Fly, which he did a fabulous job on that with uh, uh, Jeff uh, Gold. What's that? Jeff Goldsmith? Is that his name? The guy from Jurassic Park. He was in that, The Fly. That, that was really good. And uh, so David Cronenberg did some really, really excellent horror of films. Uh, I really like Dead Ringers, too, which was based on a, a true story of gynecologists who were twins and doing creepy stuff to women. Ugh, I know the whole thing sounds creepy, uh, and so that's that's a really good fact over there. A lot of good people in that film. I mean, I am just amazed that Clive Barker was able to get this film made for only only eleven million dollars back in nineteen ninety. I mean, that was nothing, and it had some credible actors in there. Great job with David Cronenberg. He had Danny Elfman because I don't know probably before he couldn't afford him anymore because he did all the big movies, you know, Beetlejuice and. Batman, all kinds of stuff. But Danny Elfman does the uh, the film score for that. And, and the movie is shot very well. For, for somebody who didn't have much on special effects, I mean, they did a great job of making the underground, you know, Nightbreed world and everything. I mean, it's it's just a, a, fine, a fine film. And a real good, uh, I, I feel, um, message about, uh, about prejudice and, and about how treating things differently is a bad idea. It, it makes you, in the end, to be the monster and not really the monster itself, which I think is the moral there. 
All right, folks, uh, I could probably go on another two hours about this guy. He's, he's just that interesting and that, that fascinating, that really important to our writing and, and to our lives. So check out Clive Barker. We got some other shows coming up over here. We got another uh, guest house coming up here at the end of uh, November. Me and John are doing some, some great work on that. Can't wait for that. Uh, I got a, a, another mailbag coming out, another episode where we can talk about all kinds of emails from people. You'll really love this one. I got a lot of interesting ones on that one. And then, of course, we're going to go on to the uh, the third, excuse me, the third, the third in the series of uh, the mechanics of Muse with uh, what is uh, discipline. So that's going to be that's going to be fun and and, and and definitely revealing, you know. And I got a few other uh, shows in here. December, we're trying to get over to the hundredth show and wrap the year up before we move into twenty twenty. So hopefully, I can think of that many more shows to do, or at least have the time to do it in the middle of the the holidays and everything. But I'm going to definitely do my best. Thank you very much for supporting us through all of this and uh, all the great comments I've gotten and the, and, the, and the great emails. Hey, I'm even going to thank the people that gave me some crappy emails, okay? At, at least you thought about us. At least you listened to the show. Sorry, I'm not going to agree with everything, uh, especially if you call me names. kind of hard to agree with that, but hey, that's just, that's the business when you when you do something like this. You're going to get, you know, you're going to get folks out of the woodwork just as much as you're going to get them out in the kitchen dancing, okay? Until next time, folks, this is Mark Anthony Rossi, writer, author, playwright, podcaster, host, for Strength to Be Human. God bless and take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.